Tactical Transition Navigating the Civilian Frontier Mastering Career Strategies Sharpening Networking Tools and Creating a Successful Transition Plan Hello everyone, welcome to the Tactical Transition Podcast. We focus on our senior leaders as they transition from their military careers into the civilian job market, covering best practices, up-to-date trends, additional resources, and tips for landing that dream job. This is episode number 10. We're in the double digits, Michelle. This is amazing. I am Cindy Poe, an executive career coach with Easel Seminars, and I'm here with my battle buddy, as always, and fellow executive career coach, Michelle Lewis. I know Michelle's excited about today's show. (laughs) You know, I always open it up that way. I'm so excited about our guest today. I'm actually very biased about our guest today, so... um, uh, I want to take a minute to introduce everybody to uh, to my better half. Um, I know throughout these podcasts, you've heard us talk about our spouses, our husbands, and I always mention George's name. So today um, we have brought George on to our podcast and we're going to ask him a few questions about his transition from the military. So Cindy, let me take a couple minutes and tell you a little bit about uh, George, other than the fact that he is my sweet husband. Um, George enlisted in the Army in 1985 as a Signals Intercept Electronic Warfare and Cryptology Specialist. (laughs) Obviously, I'm not. Um, He graduated from the Defense Language Institute uh, with basic French and Electronic Warfare Operators course before he was assigned to Fort Bragg's 18th Airborne Corps and was in the 525 Um, Combat Electronic Warfare and Intelligence Brigade. After that, George served in numerous roles, ranging from a reconnaissance team leader to a squad leader to a platoon sergeant. And then um, as he was serving as as a team sergeant in the third of the fifth Special Forces Group, he received a green to gold scholarship. And so George went back to school and then came back into the military as a commission officer in May of 1993 with the Army Military Intelligence Corps. George later served uh, in command and staff positions uh, throughout battalions, brigades, divisions, um, and many joint assignments. He led and conducted EW and SIGINT um, and any other special missions globally uh, during the initial wars uh, or years of the global war on terrorism while assigned to a Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC. George led intelligence planning, operations analysis, and strategy in Korea for three years, which was a wonderful duty station. And then as a battalion commander in Anbar, Iraq, um, he commanded uh, a BSTB, um, which did route clearances, uh, EOD, disposal, military police. Basically, it was a a small uh, town that he uh, was commanding. Um, And they were an extremely great battalion and did great things. In George's final tour of the military, he was in the Pentagon Purgatory, as we lovingly refer to it, and served as the G8 Force Development Director for ISR, um, EW, and Cyber Capabilities. After retiring as a colonel, George served as a, a, has been serving, continues to serve, as both in a vice president role and an executive director role with CACI, C-A-C-I, International, where he works very closely with EW Cyber and ISR mission areas. George lives in Edenton, North Carolina, where he serves now on the Steamers Baseball Board, where he serves on the Board of Education. And he also serves as a vice president with Calling on Faith Outdoors, and is a guide, an outdoor guide for veterans with Valor and Honor Outdoors. And you guys probably know a little bit about them because they've been on our podcast. So ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to George Lewis, um, my better half. Um, And Cindy, I'm going to let you go ahead and get the podcast started. And let's talk to George about his military transition. Absolutely. George, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. As you can uh imagine uh, you're a very busy man so we appreciate you taking the time uh, to spend with us you always have uh, we enjoy when you come to the class and and speak with with the current transitioning service members it's always um, 
great to see that mentor. So, so thank you. I really thank you. Enjoy. We appreciate it. So I think where I want to start, you know, we have um, uh, the guests come on the show and we always ask about best practices uh, for the transition. But I want to I want to start on a subject that we we don't generally start with. Uh, and that is about what Michelle and I often call that identity loss that especially our senior members uh, may experience as they're transitioning from their military career into the civilian sector. And I know you have a very interesting take on that. And I just want to give you the floor and I want you to discuss your, your viewpoint about that subject. Thanks. Uh, thank you both for having me. Uh, enjoy being here. I do enjoy uh, continuing to mentor, whether it's, you know, here in town or with veterans, with young kids as we take them out and teach them about the outdoors, uh, even having some challenges trying to help uh, mentor my new board of education uh, folks. So lots of fun. Um, so I, I'm not a big fan personally of the identity loss uh, kind of thing. Um, to me, you are who you are. Uh, you know who you are. And uh, I don't think that is directly tied to any position or any organization. Um, you know, as you mature, you learn more and more. You, you. Uh, I like to think about grocery shopping. You know, when you go in a grocery store, you don't have to take everything on the shelves. You just take the items that you want sometimes you see something flashy check it out well with, with um different organizations i i don't think people are that organization i think they contribute something to the organization but uh i don't think they are i think they take things from it and that kind of builds out their life experiences and all but so i'm just I'm never a fan of the, it's an identity loss. I, I, you know, I love some of the references people use about the next chapter uh, of their life, you know, turning the page um, in, you know, the next season maybe of what they're doing. But uh, to me, it was just, uh, it's not an identity. Now, that being said, uh, you certainly miss aspects of what it was you did before i don't miss 18 hours a day in the pentagon um and being at you know the beck and call of everyone else and you know really putting the effort into a project honing everything doing all the background work and then just whimsically having someone choose to go a different direction um so i <laughs> don't miss any of that but i certainly miss the camaraderie of, uh, of a good team um, and folks that may disagree, but they all have uh, a common purpose. And, you know, despite some of the newer trends in, um, you know, business language of diversity and equity and inclusion, and any good team has done that all their life. Those are just new labels for uh, what was always solid leadership. Uh, it was clearly very easy to see. And I'm glad some HR person's making a lot of money coming up with new terms, but there's nothing new about it. Uh, it's what we've always been doing in any good organization. And so um, I, I miss diverse teams that are pointed at a common objective and willing to um, give up their, you know, personal um, want for a collective outcome. I certainly miss that. Uh, and, and I will tell you at the same time, industry is no different than the military. If you had four companies in a battalion, each of them wanted to do something their own way. Uh, and you had to work to point them all in the right direction. And that could have been four team members in a fire team. That could have been, you know, four squads in a platoon. Uh, it probably could be four divisions and a core. Uh, they each want to have their own identity and head in their own direction. But at the end of the day, they all understood the objective they were working towards. And uh, in industry, we see that. And I've got a great CEO of the company I'm with. I love watching him. He is truly a strategic leader. Uh, but it's interesting to watch each of his subgroups 
you know, kind of want to do their their things their own way and, and you know, uh, watch them wrangle them. I, you know, I, I work with the same thing now on a board of education and uh, just trying to get people there to loosen up and actually point at the same objective. So uh, I don't think it's an identity. I think you are who you are. Um, but I do think there are things in the military that were really, um, they made it fun. They made it enjoyable. They made it worth, um, you know, offering up your life for someone else uh, because they were ultimately pointed in the same direction. So, uh, you know, do miss those things. But I'm just not a fan of the identity uh, kind of thing. So, so George, oftentimes our class, you know, they talk about that, uh, you know, they're they so wrapped around and, and it's, it's a dedication. It's not a negative uh, viewpoint, but it's their dedication to being uh, the best soldier they can be. Or also um, maybe their professional reputation that they have worked all these years to earn that professional reputation. And, and there's this thought or or maybe even a feeling that as they transition out of the military a change and that's what they lose because their team you know in the army they everybody they knew the professional reputation they knew what they brought to the table and now they're going into something new um do you do you define that as an identity loss or or what do you think about that concept of or or that um maybe that anxiety that some transitioning service members may feel that they're losing that professional reputation that they have worked so hard to develop. Yeah. So um, I, I understand that. And there certainly is an identity within certain organizations. I spent uh, time uh, in both the intelligence community. Uh, I spent it in maneuver divisions and corps and in special operations community. And again, each has their own. Um, you certainly have a reputation that you work towards, you build there. But today when I hire or when I recommend people for my company, that reputation is the first thing we look back at. Um, your reputation uh, in, in your networks of people, in your past work, uh, all that is going to carry forward, good or bad. And so it's, uh, you know, it's very important um, to remember. And I try to tell uh, folks that are transitioning is, you know, don't burn any bridges on the way out um, because those relationships in networking are, are important and your reputation is essential. It will carry forward. Uh, we are hiring and often there are back channel conversations about who knows this person or who can we uh, link ourselves to, to to find out, you know, how they performed in a job that may now translate into what they want to do um, within the company. Their reputation also has a lot to do with who they made themselves. Were they a lifelong learner? Did they, while they were in the service, um, pursue everything from professional development schools or educational, do they have a hunger for learning? Because that's going to carry forward into a next career that says they're trainable. They're willing to learn on their own. They're willing to listen to others. Um, they can, again, pick and choose the best of what uh, they had in a previous career uh, and figure out how to translate that into, you know, working with the same teams now uh, in industry. But uh, it, uh, I, I think I very much understand that there was, you know, there's an identity of being on a special mission unit team. There's an identity of uh, being, you know, our, our identity in 4-3 BSTV was to actually be the best at teaming in the brigade. Uh, and that was an identity where we didn't want you to be the best infantryman or the best MP or the best. You needed to be the person that was flexible enough that when we shifted in support from one battalion to another, and that battalion had all brand new uh, mottos and the way they did things and everything else, that you needed to be really good at what we'd call lifting and shifting um, in the uh, the military. You had to be able to, to 
to take on whatever that new role was. And that is exactly what you do in transition in the military is uh, you've got to be able to sense uh, what that new organization, what its culture is, how it behaves, everything else to be able to pick up um, and take all the things that made you successful before, um, maybe translate them a little bit um, and you maybe weight some more than others but you got to be able to carry it over. So uh, I think that kind of what we all look for and, and what we deal with. I tell you one thing is for sure. And, uh, and speaking with George, cause you know, I take notes as we're going through the show. And uh, first of all, George is the master of analogies. I'm going to tell you, love it, love it, love it. There's so much to be learned from the analogies. They're just amazing. And, and as you were, um, you know, you said, it was very interesting. You said people are not the organizations, but you can take things from those organizations, but you're, you're not the organization. So you're not the military. You're not the army. You're not the Marines. You're not, that's not who you are. You can take away things from that. Um, in your experience, let's just talk about you. Um, Cause I, I consider you a very successful transitioned military career. I, that was a very successful transition you had. So what, did you take away from the organization that helped you be successful in that transition? So, you know, I think we are a combination of all of our experiences, right? And then on top of that, we then have free will and choice, right? So uh, we can take the best from, or we can learn, we, you know, we can learn equally from a good leader or a poor leader. Uh, we can learn what not to do. At the same time, we can learn what to do. We can learn how to subordinate ourselves on an on an SFA team because we know there's 11 other assessed and competent, you know, folks, and I can be comfortable at this time to say, okay, it's not my plan, um, but I'm going to make that other person's plan my plan, and and know how to subordinate yourself at the same time, be a good follower and all. So I think. In any organization, uh, you know, I have had what today we would title toxic leaders. Um, we would just call it tough love uh, back in the day. But, uh, you know, and I've learned, hey, I don't want to be that way. I don't want to do that. I like the outcome. So I had to assess how it is they got us to the outcome, but, you know, not choose some of the things that went there. It was, you know, every member of the military will tell you that the best unit in their service and in all the services is the unit they're in, right? If I uh, grew up as I did at Fort Bragg and was with the 82nd Airborne, I was convinced all my career, um, not only that we were the best, but, you know, everybody else suffered a mental deficiency or something <laughs> else, right? They, they just weren't us until you get reassigned and now you're in the 101st and uh, you're still wondering why you got an airborne tab over that screaming eagle but you are now realized that boy this is a heck of an organization and they have all kinds of capability to do something that before we couldn't have done um and uh, now that's the best organization you know in the in the service and i'm sure uh other services feel the way the same way. You know, Marines feel that if they shift from the East Coast to the West Coast. Uh, you know, Navy folks, if they ship, you know, move from one fleet to the other, that's going to happen. Airmen from wing to wing, uh, coasties to say all that. They're, you know, wherever they're at. And I'd say you have to carry that with you in, in industry. Uh, you've got to realize your company is the best at whatever strengths it has and um, the identity that it wants to project. And a lot of that comes from uh, the, the CEO, what previously would have been a commander, uh, pointing us at what it is that we're good at. Uh, right now in my company, it's technology and expertise, and we can tie anything into those two. Uh, and, you know, if I was uh, in my old BSTB, I would have told you it's one team, one fight. We're the best of teams, right? So there's a there's an identity. I think we take from each of those organizations, hopefully, again, back to being a lifelong learner, 
that we were observing, not just doing while we were in those organizations. And that is a skill that's going to come forward as we hire people in the industry um, or if they pursue, uh, you know, small business opportunities or they want to go and become a teacher or anything else. I think all those skills matter, the ability to observe, the ability to evaluate what's of worth, what I should, you know, put in my rucksack and take with me and uh, what I should leave probably, uh, you know, behind. So. Yeah, that's that's a really brilliant um, thought process there too. Um, you know, learn you can learn equally from a good leader or a bad leader. You know, you're learning, and that that's really um, you know it's funny. I remember reading a um, article in Forbes where it was they were talking about soft skills and what are the the soft skills that industry um, that corporate America is really looking for. And the number one hand down, you know, people would say, "Oh, it would be leadership," or it would be this adaptability is is what every team wanted someone who could just you know you got to be able to shift and and oh you know life changes world changes you got to be able to adapt with that and it's like you're saying you're in the 82nd that's the best oh they're the best well now i'm over here well they're the best well no we're the best it's that adaptability to make wherever you are and and whatever you're um a part of whatever team you're a part of um is is putting that positivity and 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 that goes with that learning too. You can learn equally from a bad leader or a good leader. It's all well, in how you take away. Real quick, I mean, SFAS, Special Forces Assessment Course, and some of the special mission, mission unit programs I went through, we were not looking for the best, you name it, whatever, shooter, linguist, um, you know, physically fit, whatever. You needed to be good at all those kind of things. But at the end of the day, what we were really assessing for is exactly what you just said. Uh, no matter what we put in front of you, can you learn and conquer? Can you achieve whatever mission is put in front of you? And, uh, you know, whether it came to human skills, the ability to interact with others, to read others, uh, and be very different than who you were personally at home um, to be able to solve whatever mission. So that adaptability uh, is critical. You got to have some hard skills, uh, you know, particularly if you're in a technology company or something else. You've got to be able to speak the language. The language is different, so you got to be a translator. Uh, but that is again a skill that people have done all their life in their career. Um, they hear one thing they know how their boss or how their audience or how their customer processes and they will then change their vernacular to communicate um that you know over so that's again all adaptability like you said yeah i mean it, it's definitely important and you had also said something and then i i definitely want to move forward but like i said i i just capture little moments of what you're saying. And you, you said um, the, the, the little phrase you said is mentoring happens. You, you know, it's like you, and you how, said how you enjoy mentoring, whether it's with the, um, you know, the uh, Valor and Honor Outdoors or it's in the school board or it's in the, the so just take a moment just to talk to uh, the transitioning leaders about the importance of, I think it's important to continue in that mentoring when they leave the military, because as a, as a military leader, I think that's what, I think that's what your day is, is like, you're, you know, you're leading, you're making decisions, but you're mentoring, you're, you're bringing up the kids, you know, you're, you're, you're doing that because there is a, in the military, the way I see it, which is different in corporate America is there is this hierarchy, you know, and it, generally comes with age and years of experience that is not always the case in corporate america um so in the military i always saw it as the older mentoring the younger and it's just a, and i think that's important for leaders to continue to do because i think it becomes part of who you are i think that's why you do it so much george <laughs> i think that's why you participated in so much but talk to the importance of finding that Absolutely. I do think it's important. I think that is one of those things that you do carry with you. Uh, it is certainly in the military, something we try to develop uh, in junior leaders. We give them, you know, basic uh, interpersonal or tactical kind of level direct leadership. 
And as you mature in life, you move to organizational and really kind of strategic leadership and, and how you shape things. Uh, I think you should want to be a mentor. Uh, I don't think I'm not a big fan of people being assigned mentors. I think you you got to want to learn, and then you got to go find people that are different than you, right? It's uh, it's you, you don't want the girlfriend that says, "Yeah, that dress looks great on you," even though it doesn't, or you know, the battle buddy when you're buying the curb feelers and the fuzzy dice for your car that says, "Yeah, that'll make you really look cool." You want them to say, "Don't," right? Don't right. do that. And exactly. so whether it's a financial mentor or it's a mentor yeah. in leadership and others, you've got to be very comfortable with people telling you uh, that maybe you need to change tracks. Uh, maybe you need to, to shift the direction you're going in or tamp down um, one set of skills and, and go learn something new because we need you to move in a new direction. Uh, kind of thing. So uh, to me, mentoring is critical. The most important part to mentoring to me is presence. Uh, simply being there, uh, showing someone that you care. Uh, if you are being mentored, you have to participate uh, in the same way. And you've, you've got to be comfortable with being a little vulnerable. Uh, in that sense. And you're not going to show that directly, perhaps to your chain of command or something else, but to somebody that's in another company. It could be a competitive, one of my favorite words when it comes to partnering with uh, other companies in that, uh, again, not burning any bridges, right? Uh, we really don't want to make any enemies out there, but we need to put the whoop on them every once in a while and, and steal business or win, you know, something from them. But we got to be ready in the next moment to maybe sub underneath them uh, to combine strengths or to recognize that they're better at it and this isn't our core strength and, and move somewhere else. So um, sometimes a good mentor is actually in another company, uh, just like in the military. It might be another service. It might be somebody who has nothing to do with the military at all that's trying to teach you about different interpersonal relationships and all. But to me, Mentoring is critical. You need to have at least a mentor, preferably multiple mentors. Uh, they're not only always a, a senior. Uh, you know, as an officer, right. I thought it was very important to have NCO uh, and warrant officer mentors and not just other senior officers uh, because they provide different perspective. Uh, I'm personally having a little bit of struggle right now with the uh, Board of Education that I'm a part of, um, you know, I get looked over their glasses at me of, hey, you're not an educator. What do you know about this? Um, and uh, got to remind them that, you know, you're the superintendent of a board of education, that that's organizational leadership. Right. Uh, I'm certainly not going to mentor them on how to teach. But I'm going to talk to them about how you treat people and, you know, how an organization behaves and how you align your organization towards your core mission and, you know, stay grounded and connected elsewhere, those kind of things. Um, so, yeah, mentoring is critical. Presence, you know, we are able in valor and honor to do it. Um, we know there are service members and family members struggling out there. We don't go ask, do you have a problem? We sit in a hunting blind with them or a duck blind uh, or on a fishing boat and establish a bona fides that says, uh, I, I, I don't know everything you've been through, but I've been in the same type environment. And yeah. when you're comfortable too, we can talk. Uh, and so it's that presence there. Uh, it is, you know, maybe truly setting example for you. Um, but you know, you can set an example for peers and even people senior to you. Sometimes they can say, uh, boy, I kind of prefer how that person handled that, um, in, in observing you. So I, I think you should aspire to be a mentor. You should be honored if somebody asks you to be a mentor. You should, uh, be comfortable with being an accidental mentor. Uh, you know, from a faith perspective, we call that witnessing. Um, but it's no different uh, of, uh, again, you know, a teacher or principal now that I'm working with that I may see an opportunity to coach, teach, mentor, 
on organizational kind of things. Uh, and so, yeah, it's very important. Very important. Yeah. Very fulfilling, too. Back. I mean, you talk about identity, that sense that you add value and worth as a team leader leading brand new 10 level teammates uh, up through, you know, as a senior leader mentoring junior ones. Now I take tremendous pride in seeing subordinates that now have surpassed me in their accomplishments in the military. And so see folks that became general officers or sergeant majors uh, that were teammates of mine. Um, and I, th I think there's tremendous value in that. That gives you a sense of worth uh, for sure. Yeah, I think I think that's an amazing um, uh, message. And I, I love when you were talking about, um, you know, like being on the school board. OK, you weren't an educator, but isn't that the point of having people on the school board? who aren't educators so that they can get the point of view and the perspective from someone else. That's the point of a board is That's you want perspective. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, if you have the same person, you know, when I'm using my bunny quotes over here, you know, your same person sitting in each seat, then you're, you're not going to be covering all the bases. You need to have someone to, to point out another, another way, another you know, another suggestion to make things better. Otherwise, you're just status quo all the time. You can't have the same person and ever get better. You know, you you have to you have to have that. So I love that message, and I think that and I think that that's amazing. You that again, I, I say you're you're a fantastic example of a successful transition, and not just because you got out and you got a job. I I stand in front of a group of military leaders, and I that will tell you, I can. My wife defines success. <laughs> yeah, no. So, but <laughs> but out, you know, I every, got a job and I got stayed. out. You got a job. There you go. You <laughs> stayed out of trouble. But but seriously though, I can I I can feel comfortable standing in front of a group of of the leaders at Henderson Hall and say, I could get you all a job, a job tomorrow. I could you could all be gainfully employed tomorrow. You'll be fine. But that's not what the goal is. The goal is that life balance. And if anybody has found the life balance, it is the Lewis family. Let me tell you, between the hard work, the exceptional positions that you take, but you still have time for community, family, friends, uh, your, your church or faith, all of that stuff. And that is why I think you are a success story for uh, transition is because you've made the life balance. I love the story Michelle tells about you taking, well, this might get him in trouble, but if it, if it gets him in trouble, I'll bleep this out, but about taking a meeting while you're sanding your sailboat, you know, like, I just think that's, that's, that's life balance. Life balance is, is finding, doing the work and contributing but finding the thing that brings you joy and happiness for you and your family because if you're happy your family's going to be happy and uh that's the the successful transition I so i don't think you need to i think carrying that through in transition is very important i think that is something we teach new soldiers and you know new lieutenants uh as they come in the importance it's hard you're going to work very hard very long hours and it, yeah. it's kind of like the the love languages thing about you got to invest in the bank if you ever want to make a withdrawal on it you have to have done those things but i mean we used to do the same things as a young leader you know in the 82nd one of my favorite entries that i finally got called for on the training calendar was either interdict aircraft with small arms fire which was a common task we had to train for and navigate from a known point. Now, what we were really doing is navigate from a known point where we were on the golf course and we considered the first tee box, the known point. And from there we had to find our ball and you know keep working our way down the course. And interdict aircraft with small arms fire was us going to McKellar's Lodge at Fort Bragg to shoot skeet. Um, but that works. it was- that works. Well, I was able to teach uh, lead and everything else that I needed with that military task, but we were able to do it in a way that we were building the team uh, yeah. all. And so I don't, I don't think that's any different than you know trying to find yeah. fun ways to capture folks' attention, you know, in anything we're doing. 
And, and, you know, I, I get what you're saying. You know, there are those definite <laughs> parallels of that. And that's, that is also built into you. Um, but I think that the, the, the difference, the difference that I see, and I just remember feeling this when, uh, when my, when Joe, when my husband transitioned or, you know, left the military, when he, when he decided to separate, he did not retire, he separated. And that was a hard decision. And what I remember about the difference in the way his behavior was compared to when he was in the military was he had trouble with the fact that now it's all our choice. Everything was our choice, where we lived, where we worked, if we moved, if whatever happened, it was our choice. Nothing was being dictated. And I think that that's where learning that life balance and what is important. We talk about that aim small, miss small in our class all the time. And it's important. I think it's very important because I think that you do forget that now it's all up to you. <laughs> For the better or worse, Michelle will always say, you know, hey, if you decide you're going to go take this job and move to this place and it's terrible, you can't blame the military anymore. You can't say, well, they sent me there. Nope, you chose it. It's your choice. And I think that being able to find that life balance and knowing what's important to you and everything makes it makes it um, makes it better. So, but we got off track a little bit from our, our question. Michelle, I'm going to, I've been monopolizing George. I'm going <laughs> to let you jump in uh, to talk about uh you know, telling well, people I, to I'm, figure out I'm where gonna, they want to land. You yeah, know? I'm going to I'm going to follow up uh, with some of the, again, some of uh, George's analogies. George, often you've heard us as we teach the class, you you observed our class, you've been a guest speaker in our class, and you've actually gone through the transition class as you were getting ready to transition out of the military. And you've heard us say, you know, where are you going to land when you get out of the military? Where do you want to land? <laughs> you and I had a conversation about that. And you compared it, I believe, to a PLF landing um, out of a, out of a, you know, in, a, in an airborne unit. Do you recall how you um, created that analogy? And what were you um, giving us an example for our transitioning service members to consider as, as we talk about where do you want to land when you get out of the service? Sure. And you know, I know we're speaking to all the services uh, here and, and to spouses and others, but you guys deliberately, I think, use the term land. Uh, and I would say that can translate to a landing force in the Navy or landing an aircraft or, you know, in our case, uh, in the Army, it was, it, it, it was a PLF, a parachute landing ball. Uh, in the 82nd, we got to land before we can do anything else. Uh, and we spend a tremendous amount of time as a jump master in a unit teaching people to where landing um, becomes automatic because we realize that if, if you goof that up, uh, you can get injured. And I care about you. I don't want you to be injured. But from a much more selfish organizational perspective, I needed you to get something done. I needed you as part of the mission. And so I really need you to be able to land effectively so you can, Charlie Mike, uh, continue the mission so that you can then transition from that into whatever you're doing. So uh, as a jump master, ever since I was in E4 promotable uh, through my entire life, I immediately thought of a parachute landing fall um, because we, we go through lots of inspections. Um, before that, to make sure their equipment's right and all, I, I think that translates to uh, you getting your medical done right uh, and you getting professional certificates together and everything else. You, you've done all that. And then as you are getting ready to make this move, um, that in my sense, that parachute landing call, you got to hit five points of contact with your balls, your feet, your calf your thigh, your buttocks, and your push-up muscle. And uh, we teach that, we show people that, we have them rehearse it. Um, so that, to me, that kind of equates to your elevator speech and all that. You've done all that work uh, and that you're now primed uh, to just kind of automatically, when an opportunity presents itself in, uh, in this transition, as you're networking, as you begin interviewing, that you get an opportunity to talk about yourself that you don't stumble, you don't reach for the ground and break your ankle or your knee or something else, and you can't make that transition, that you 
see that opportunity, um, you prepare for it, you've done the rehearsals in your head, and then you can deliver, and you know that what you have to deliver is not about you, uh, that it's about your value to that company or whatever position you're you're coming to. And so, you, you know, you're not just stumbling over it, you're hitting those five points of performance and whatever in your elevator speech you knew was important to talk about yourself. And really what matters to any business out there is how you are going to be so valuable that they can't afford not to have you on the team. And they've got to see that value in what you're talking about, not just hear you kind of woof it, but they've got to see that there is real value in having you join the team. Uh, and I don't think that's, I don't think you guys in your course can know in anything you're teaching exactly what that is. It's got to be instinctual to them um, because they've gone through and they've prepared uh, all these different um worksheets and different things you can have them do but what you're really doing is you're kind of prepping them for that moment and so that they understand i i one of the most difficult things to help lifetime government employees understand is if you are not more valuable to your business than what you cost them you will not have a job uh, you have to return value uh, greater than where you're there. You know, I pick on my time in the Pentagon and if, uh, you know, a GS or anyone punts a decision for a year, they still get paid for the next year sitting in that job. They got paid that day that they didn't make a decision um, and all in industry, though, we will let you go. If the job right. didn't come to fruition, all the money we had invested before that, and that failed opportunity. Um, we're going to try to find you another role somewhere, but we really got to see that what you contribute is worth more than what it cost us right. in, in terms of pay and all. So anyways, I, I think the PLF just, when you guys use the language of land, it translated to me that we spend a tremendous amount of time preparing a young paratrooper to be prepared to land. Um, right. I know when I hear pilots talk about, you know, the, most dangerous thing they do is typically not flying around in the air. It's it's doing a controlled crash right. um, that you know they call a landing, and that's all the PLF is is a controlled crash. Controlled right. crash. <laughs> now you're doing this transition from something you know, and you guys know this very well. A soldier, other than for a nominative job, and I, it could be an airman, it could be a, a marine, a, a sailor. But anyone other than a nominative job, you, you typically didn't have any choice. You didn't have an interview. You didn't have a resume. You didn't have anything. You were told where you were going. You knew your title. You knew what you were going to be paid. Um, your health benefits, all, all those other kind of things were always the same. Mm -hmm. um, now we're, we're getting ready to exit that airplane, and we're going to land in bad guy land. And things are going to be different. And so you want as much automatic, I think, in that process. And that's where I kind of got PLF from. Well, I, and I loved it. But what, what I want to tie now, my next question to you on that is, and I think that is excellent advice you're giving folks. And, and you're right. It all matters. The landing is what, what matters, right? Um, but you talked about how are you going to be valuable to that organization and that company? Well, George, how do you know what that value is how do you you know what kind of research did you do how did you conduct that research to be able to know what value you brought to individual organizations and companies and then a second part of that question is what kind of research did you do that allowed you to know that was even a company you wanted to be a part of what kind of things were you looking for um, as you were preparing to transition out um, not only the value you brought but the value they gave to you so if you could share a little bit of your thoughts on that um, to tie into what you were just saying so uh, thanks I, I think that's it's obviously something tough. It's something that you've really got to put some time into. You guys in your course, you offer a lot of 
of good tools to help people figure that out. Uh, you know, glass ceiling kind of stuff. Uh, you understand pay ranges. You may be able to look at, you know, recent award notices to see the kind of work that uh, companies going into certainly reputation and and that's it's for me I was lucky in that I my last jobs in the military weren't command where it was all about kind of my organization I was in a role working requirements and budgets and other kind of things that I got to see uh, corporate America that I hadn't seen for twenty something years of my career. Uh, and and I got to see which companies, when they came to speak to the government, treated you how. And some, it was, um, it's kind of like a vampire movie where they warn you, don't, don't invite them in because they'll never go away. Uh, I certainly oh, had man. business development people that once they felt they could knock on my door in the Pentagon and I was polite to them that they just had to come and sell me every possible thing they wanted um, versus, you know, really others who um, probably had the same ends in mind, but their human interaction approach was different. They might value what you had to say and all. And I will tell you, I think those were the best companies. I now realize on the other side that it was still all an approach. Uh, if you're in the intelligence business and particularly the human intelligence business, um, you understand approaches and being, you know, trying to pick apart the psyche of someone and understand how best you might achieve what you want with them out of that. And, you know, it, some companies knew I wanted to contribute and have a conversation to it. And I was able to assess it. But anyways, you just had to look at you. You have to spend time reading about, asking about, and maybe even experiencing through interviews, uh, what is the climate? What is the culture in that organization? What are their products? Um, it's a good thing to ask the acquisition community what they think uh, of someone and not on an official email, but pick up the phone or preferably have coffee with them. Um, I asked a lot of my mentors uh, what did they think about company x over company y and what is the climate and culture in it you know in the defense industry there are some industries that you would not think you left the military because their culture is one of admiral this and you know general that and everything else um, and that's fine they're highly successful i'd invest in them uh, given the opportunity to diversify a portfolio because uh, some of them make some really good, you know, returns. But there are others that um, more free thinking, you know, not quite to the extent of an, an Apple or a Nike uh, kind of thing when you, you read about or see about. But, you know, the company I chose to go with, I, I saw everything from former senior leaders who knew how to communicate back to the services and knew how to translate um, what the services interest was into action in the company. But then I also saw, you know, Trekkies and um, all, all kinds of, of folks that we value because technically they are phenomenal at what they do. And when I can take a former senior leader that can translate what it is that you know a service needs into uh, we'd really like you to make something cool and watch no. our engineers then take off with that idea and the things they can return. It's amazing, um, and I wanted to be in a little more of what I'd call you know kind of a special operations organization that had all these really bright people. You just had to figure out what to line them up and point them at. Um, and, uh, versus, you know, very structured, uh, kind of thing, but people are more comfortable to, you know, if you came out of a very structured environment, you may, you may want to go back into that. Um, yeah. but it took, it, it took, 
really researching, really spending a lot of time with mentors. Michelle will tell you, I had a very structured approach to um, successful seniors, both still in the military and that had transitioned into industry, who talked to me about three, four, or five different Venn diagram areas that you had to consider, um, you know, quality of life, pay, location, job satisfaction, whatever. And they, every one of them was amazing, kind of had their own take on, you know, how to divine value and to weight those efforts and other kind of things out of there. And so it was more from hearing enough conversations that it helped me kind of decide which way I wanted to go and where I went. And I, I, when it came down to the end, I had two very qualified companies I was looking at, one more structured than, than the other, um, one that functionally let me rewrite the, the job description um, for them because I really knew the industry well enough um, and knew where the services were going, or at least I felt I knew that I could bird dog for them a little bit and help them get to where they wanted to go. And, uh, you know, that, that worked out for me, but it, it really came down to doing a lot of research and weighting each of those little different Venn diagram areas that I know, uh, Cindy and Michelle talked to their classes uh, about. Yeah. I think the, um, the research, it's it's a it's tough, you know. It's tough when you don't know what you don't know. Again, this will be one of those moments that if this isn't fitting to talk about, I'll just cut it on out. But um, you know, let's talk about writing that that job description. Join us next Friday for a special extended episode of the Tactical Transition Podcast, and we'll continue our interview with retired Colonel George Lewis. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate your time, and we will never waste it. To our transitioning military veterans, our focus is to bring you the aim small, miss small concept and hone your focus into each transition process step. Until next time. This has been the Tactical Transition Podcast. Thank you for listening. Be sure to push the follow button on our podcast and subscribe to ESELseminars.com.